Well, this morning we uh, are in Matthew chapter 22, and uh, last week we saw the first uh, group, which was the Pharisees, come up to Jesus and challenge him with uh, something that they thought that he would not be able to deal with. And as we saw last week, he was uh, more than able to handle their question about uh, what we ought to render to Caesar. And this morning, the Sadducees, we're going to meet them, and they have their own particular challenge for Jesus. And you can find that on page number 984 of the Pew Bibles. And we will be looking at verses 23 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. The same day, Sadducees came to Jesus, who say there is no resurrection. And the Sadducees asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, which of course they say there is no resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we see these Sadducees challenging Jesus, uh, despising your word, and then we see how Jesus brings us back to your word and shows us in his greatness how he can be trusted and how your word as well can be trusted. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would give us great confidence in your precepts, in your statutes, in your law. May we be moved to meet you truly as you've revealed yourself through the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever had uh, the experience where you went to go and find something that you remember leaving on the kitchen counter, and then when you come to the kitchen counter, the thing that you're looking for is not there. And so then you say to your spouse or your sibling or your parent, hey, have you seen my, you know, whatever it is, I, I left it here on the counter. And we all know their response, right? Well, no, I, I haven't seen it. And then you want to say to them, well, are you sure? Because I remember leaving it here on the counter. And their response is, I'm sure. I know for a fact I didn't touch your thing that you left on the counter. And then you say, well, you had to have seen it because I remember putting it down right here and you are the only person who could have done anything with it. Is this familiar to any of you, this scenario? Or is it just me and Anne who go through this? 
Well, it doesn't take long uh, before your spouse or your sibling uh, is bugged at you because you're basically accusing them of losing something of yours uh, and purposely forgetting that they lost it. And then you go off to begin looking for your stuff, and the whole time you're mad because you know that you left it on the counter, and they must have picked it up and done something with it. And then they're bugged at you because you're accusing them of moving your stuff, and they're just as confident that they didn't touch your stuff as you are confident that they had to have done something with it. Now, I mentioned this scenario because I want us all to have in our mind that sense that I know I'm right. So that's, that's what I'm hoping to resurrect in all of us right now, that, that connection to the feeling of knowing for a fact that I am right about something. I put that thing right there on the counter, and since I know that must be true, somebody must have done something with it. You see, every single one of us trusts ourselves. We trust our memory, We trust our perceptions. We trust our intuitions. If something seems right to us, we usually think it is right. Think about your opinions. Of all your deeply held beliefs about God, about politics, about the way the world is and the way that you should live in the world, which one of those deeply held opinions and beliefs are you wrong about? None, right? Not a single one. Now, all of us are smart enough to know that we can't possibly be right about all of our deeply held beliefs and opinions. But we couldn't possibly tell you which one of those deeply held opinions and beliefs those are. We're just as confident about all of our deeply held beliefs and opinions as we are that I put that thing on the counter and somebody else must have done something with it. And the truth is, friends, this is how we read the Bible. We bring all of our intuitions and our perceptions and our deeply held beliefs and opinions to the Bible when we read it. And the question is this. Are we willing to let Scripture change our thinking? Are we willing to submit and humble ourselves under the words of the Bible? Are we going to let Scripture shape our deeply held beliefs and opinions? Or, alternatively, are we going to stand in judgment over the Scriptures? Because the truth is, those are our only two options. In our passage today, we meet a group of religious leaders in Israel uh, called the Sadducees, and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They went to the scriptures. They read in the scriptures where it says that God will raise the dead, and they thought, well, that doesn't seem right to us. That goes against our deeply held beliefs and opinions that people don't rise from the dead. They thought they knew better. It sounded way too unscientific to them, and so they refused to believe it. In fact, as we'll see this morning, they thought the Bible even contradicted itself about the resurrection of the dead. And so they bring their challenge to Jesus, 
And Jesus' response to them is very instructive for us. Here's our outline this morning. First, we're going to look at the reason humans doubt Scripture, according to humans. And then we're going to look at the reason humans doubt Scripture, according to Jesus. So he's got an opinion on that matter. And then finally, how to resolve doubts about Scripture, according to Scripture. So why do human beings tend to doubt Scripture? Well, ultimately, the reason someone doubts Scripture is because we trust something else more. We trust the modern philosophers and scientists more than a book compiled and written by men between two and three thousand years ago. Or we trust our own wisdom and our own spiritual experiences more. Some believe they've encountered God. They've had an experience of God. And so they, through that experience, believe they know what God is like. And so when they come and they read who God says he is in Scripture, they think, well, that can't be who God is because I've encountered God myself, and he's different than this God. So either we believe the Scripture is what it claims to be, which is the very words of God. So when Scripture speaks, it should be as if God himself is speaking to us, or we don't believe that. There is no in-between. And so the Sadducees, who we meet in our passage today, like we said, they do not believe in the afterlife. They thought when someone died, they were dead. And so they did not believe every word of Scripture. The only scriptures they thought had any merit were the first five books written by Moses. And even those books, I'm sure there are things in there that they doubted. They, they probably struggled with the idea of a worldwide flood. Or the angel of death killing the firstborn in Egypt. Or of Moses parting the Red Sea. We're told in the book of Acts, that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. So these are the materialists, right? They believed in what they could see and touch. And so after the Pharisees just got done challenging Jesus about whether it was lawful or not to pay taxes to Caesar, which we looked at last week, the Sadducees now decide to give Jesus their best shot about what the scriptures say about the afterlife. And here's what we read. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. And after them all the woman died. In the resurrection... Therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And so the Sadducees, like we've said, did not believe that people rose from the dead. To them, that sounded completely absurd. And they thought they'd found a contradiction in Scripture. They thought they had the perfect proof from Scripture for why it was totally absurd to believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so Moses taught uh, what, what is called leveret marriage. What leveret marriage is, uh, is a way of caring for a woman after her husband died. And so in that culture, if a woman ended up a widow, she was incredibly vulnerable. Uh, She was a less desirable marriage partner. Uh, She was vulnerable physically, emotionally, and financially. 
And so with Leveret marriage, what happened was God set up a way for the brother of the husband who died to care for his widow uh, by marrying her. And if she didn't have children, his children that he produced with her would, would follow the line of his brother so that his dead brother would still have heirs. Now, this is one of those laws that was on the books, but was typically not practiced very often. Uh, And the reason that is, I think we can all imagine, is the brother who was uh, presented with the opportunity to marry his dead brother's widow uh, typically declined because that was kind of a bum deal, he, he thought. But this provided the perfect hypothetical test case for the Sadducees to prove how ridiculous it is to imagine anyone ever rising from the dead. This is probably one of their best proofs. This is probably a conundrum that no one could solve. They went around saying, hey, this resurrection of the dead doesn't make any sense. What happens, what happens at the resurrection for those with leveret marriages? Wh- who's, whose wife is this woman going to be? And people were stumped, and so they figured Jesus would be stumped as well. Tell us, Jesus, in the unlikely yet conceivable scenario where a woman is married to a man who has seven brothers, and they all die, so they all end up married to her for a while, if there were such a thing as rising from the dead, tell us, Jesus, who she's supposed to be married to. So that's their challenge. Now, before we look at Jesus' response— Let's just imagine and meditate for a minute, for a minute, on what their perspective of what Scripture is must be, in order to even ask this question. Because Scripture clearly teaches the resurrection of the dead. Isaiah 26, 19 says, your dead shall live. I mean, you just don't get clearer than that. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Book of Daniel says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there is no doubt that Scripture affirms that believers, well, actually everyone, believers will rise to salvation, uh, sinners will rise to judgment. Which means the Sadducees are rejecting Scripture. They're denying this clear teaching simply because it doesn't make sense to them. So as confident as you are that you left that thing on the counter and someone else had to have moved it, that's how confident they are that there's no such thing as the resurrection because they thought they'd found a contradiction in Scripture with this whole Leveret marriage thing. You see, they were confident because they trusted themselves. They trusted their intuitions and their perceptions and their deeply held opinions and beliefs more than Scripture. They thought they could disregard Scripture that clearly taught the resurrection because they thought they had found a contradiction in Scripture. So they were standing in judgment over it, instead of humbling themselves before the words of Scripture, instead of doubting themselves and doubting their intuitions and perceptions and deeply held beliefs based on the exact text of Scripture, they judged Scripture to be wrong instead. And this is how it works, right? Scholars criticize the Bible 
because the virgin birth doesn't make sense to them. How could a man really be in the belly of a whale for three days? God wouldn't really pour out his wrath on his own son. That's cosmic child abuse. How barbaric and cruel, how beneath the God I believe in. Surely this whole idea of a wrathful God is man-made, the scholars say. God wouldn't really command a wife to submit to her husband. There's no way the earth was created in six days. Come on. God wouldn't really give me sexual desires for someone of the same sex and then not let me act on those desires, would he? He wouldn't ask anyone to deny themselves like that. God wouldn't condemn someone to hell for eternity. I could never believe in a God like that. Do you see how easy it is to begin doubting something the scriptures clearly teach just because it doesn't make sense to us? Do you see how easy it is to stand over scripture and judgment thinking that what makes sense to us is more true than what God's word actually says? That's what the Sadducees are doing here. And so some people deny anything in the Bible is directly from God. They say it's all man-made. They'll say it's divine. So they'll try to use categories and language that are orthodox. But what they mean by divine is that the people back then who wrote the Bible back then, they're just describing their experience with God. Surely our understanding and our experience, we're so much more sophisticated now than they were back then. Surely we know so much more than they did. And my question to people who say that is, well, how do you know that? Other people say that some scriptures are from God, but others just clearly are not from God. Because there's no way God would be so demanding or so angry or so cruel or so unscientific. And so they pick and choose which scriptures they think are from God and which ones they think were written by humans, just like the Sadducees are doing here. But if we say even one part of scripture is not from God, who gets to decide which part that is? Well, the person claiming that part of Scripture is man-made, that's who. That's who gets to decide. Which means that person, usually a scholar with lots of credentials, is claiming that he knows better than God. That is absolutely the case. And so if we're deciding which Scripture is true or not, then we're the ones deciding what God is like and what God requires of us. Do you see that? As soon as I put myself in authority over Scripture to pick and choose which Scriptures are from God and which ones clearly couldn't be, now I'm creating God in my image, 
And what God expects of me is also in my image as well. So scripture stands and falls together. It's either all God's word or it's not. And so the reason humans doubt scripture is because according to humans, there's no way some of the things scripture claims could be true. But Jesus has another explanation for why humans doubt the truthfulness of scripture, which takes us to our second point. The reason humans doubt scripture according to Jesus. So here's the thing about scripture. Scripture itself claims to be the very words of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, every word of it comes directly from God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, meaning it corrects us, it it rebukes us, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If all scripture is breathed out by God, it's inspired by God, it's from God, every word is, 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 is as if God himself is speaking, then there's not a single claim in scripture about God or about what God requires of us that's not true and that we should not believe. Scripture also tells us that it's true. Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Jesus, as he's praying to God in John 17, says this, Sanctify them in truth, which means use your truth to make them holy. Well, how do we do that? Well, because your word is truth. In Romans, Paul says this, let God be truth, though everyone were a liar. Which means the Sadducees are liars. They've substituted their own understanding in place of the word of God, and so Jesus says this to them, you are wrong. Why are they wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So these are are scholars in Israel They surely know the scriptures, right? They probably have huge chunks, if not all of it, memorized. And here Jesus is saying, you don't even know the scriptures. What does he mean by that? Well, they may have known what the scriptures say about the resurrection of the dead, but they didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know them as the eternal, powerful, life-changing, God-breathed words spoken to us and written down for us from God, the God of the universe who created everything and is holding it all together. They didn't know the scriptures really are the only source of pure, concentrated truth available to us this side of heaven. And anyone who claims or denies a clear teaching from scripture is in the same boat. The only way someone can read God's word and say, that's not true, that couldn't possibly be what that says, is if, is if they trust themselves more than God. Now, there might be times where you just don't understand, but to be able to say no, to be able to understand what it says and then say no, that can't be true, is to place ourselves over God. 
And to do that means, by definition, we don't know the Scriptures. Because the person who knows the Scriptures knows they are God's Word, that when the Scriptures speak, it is as if God Himself is speaking, and that we are to tremble before them and humble ourselves before them. The Bible tells us, the picture the Bible gives for us is like blind people groping around in the dark, and the Scriptures come, and they are a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And even if someone says, I'm humble, I don't think I know better. But if there's ever a conflict between modern scholarship and and something the Bible says, well, I I trust the scholars. I trust science. I I trust the historians and the sociologists and the archaeologists and the philosophers and the psychologists. You know, I'm not leaning on my own understanding. I'm humble. I'm trusting the experts. I, I know I don't know everything. But I'm I'm just going to go with the modern experts because, golly, it's between them or this book that was written 2,000 years ago. I mean, come on. But if someone says that, don't you see they're still leaning on their own understanding? Because they are the ones who've decided they can and should trust the experts instead of God's word. And Jesus says, if you do that, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know what you're really dealing with here. And not only do you not know the scriptures, but he says you don't know the power of God. Because God could easily raise someone from the dead. God could easily part the Red Sea. He created heaven and earth just by speaking. God could easily use humans by the power of the Holy Spirit to write and then preserve his word. He could easily place Jonah in the belly of a big fish for three days. He could easily cause a virgin to conceive a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. He could easily have a good reason for commanding the slaughter of every man, woman, and child of a Canaanite tribe. Because he could easily be so holy that we cannot bear to be in his presence for a moment because of our sin. And he could easily send his own son to come and willingly lay down his life and die in the place of sinners that whoever believes in him should not perish. And because he created all things and because he sent his own son to die for us, we can know that he is good and righteous and holy and there's nothing he can't ask for us and anything he asks of us He will provide what we need. So according to Jesus, if we doubt Scripture, it's because we don't know the Scriptures and we don't know the power of God. And then Jesus just deals with their their objection rule simply. He says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You see, their objection was based on the assumption that life after, on the other side— in the resurrection was going to be the same as it is right now. So the Sadducees see this apparent contradiction between leveret marriage and the Bible's teaching on the resurrection, and what they should have thought to themselves is that if God teaches both leveret marriage and the resurrection in Scripture, then there must be an explanation. I, I, must, I must just be seeing an apparent contradiction here. 
And the reason I can't resolve it is because my knowledge is limited. And friends, this is just to tell you where I'm at. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told the, the world was created in six days. But science tells us the world is 13 billion years old. And that's an apparent contradiction. And there are people way smarter than me who try to resolve that contradiction. But I'm going to be honest with you. If I have to choose between one or the other, I'm going to choose this one. Not because I'm a fool, but because I'm a fool. And a liar by nature. And even though I don't understand how both could be true, because I don't, I'm going to go with this one. Because if I don't go with this one, I lose a historical atom. I lose the, the interpretation of Scripture, because like, I can't take that interpretation and apply it elsewhere in Scripture and come up with who God says he is. And so I would rather just say, you know what, I'm, I'm going with this. And if we find things in Scripture that seem to contradict or don't make sense to us, the answer is never, that proves Scripture is somehow untrue. The answer is always, I must not understand correctly. I must be missing something. Or God must have an explanation for this that I don't know about. So I can study harder or I can wait. And here Jesus gives the Sadducees their explanation once we rise again, we'll be like angels in heaven, which is funny because the Sadducees don't believe in angels. We won't be like angels in every way, of course. We'll just be like angels in the fact that they aren't married to each other. Their contradiction was built on the idea that life will be the same as it is now. But think about it. In the resurrection, there will be no sin. It will be possible to have close intimate relationships with every single person. You see, what keeps us from having close, intimate relationships with each other is our shame, our guilt. We don't, we don't trust each other totally. That's why marriage is so great, because you get this one person who just is stuck knowing all your flaws. And then you have this covenant bond which holds you together. And it provides this little sanctuary in this sinful world where somebody knows you deeply. But on the other side of the resurrection, we will all know each other deeply. We will have these amazing relationships with each other. And I think one of the practical applications of this teaching is for somebody who's been married twice. And, and both their spouses go to heaven. And, and if this weren't true, how awkward would that be? But because... There will be nothing but pure joy, pure knowing of each other. That person will go to heaven and be with both of their spouses, and it will be awesome. Because as the church, we are united to Christ, right? We are the bride. He is the bridegroom. We in heaven will be looking to him and him alone for all of our joy, all of our satisfaction, all of our direction. But since we're still alive this side of heaven— how do we resolve our doubts according to Scripture? How does Scripture teach us to deal with our doubts? Well, let's go back to that thing we left on the counter. In the next scene, you're begrudgingly looking for it. 
And you're hoping that your spouse or your parent or your sibling is going to realize that they really did do something with it and come running to you and say, oh, I realized that when I was cleaning the counter, I put it in my drawer. I'm so sorry. And then you can be like, yes, that's true. Feels so good. Except what actually happens is you find it in the garage. And then when you find it, you realize, oh yeah, now I remember. I remember taking it off the counter and I remember I don't want to leave it here because I want to make sure I know where to find it. And I remember putting it away in the garage. And so in this moment, we go from being so sure we're right about something, so sure that we're willing to pick a fight with our family over it, to realizing we are wrong. Why? Because we discovered truth. And reading the Bible should be like that for us. Reading the Bible should include the humbling experience of discovering the truth and realizing that we are wrong. And Jesus tells the Sadducees that they are flat out wrong. They don't know Scripture. They don't know the power of God. He tells them one of the reasons they're wrong is because they're assuming the resurrected life will be the same as it is now. And in some ways, that should be enough. Like, Jesus does not owe them an explanation any further than that. Because the scriptures they deny, are the, the ones we've already looked at from Isaiah and Daniel, are so clear about the fact of the resurrection. But Jesus decides to give them an explanation, and he decides to give them an explanation from the scriptures that Moses wrote, which they do accept. Okay? And so he proves the resurrection from those books, and the way he proves it is very instructive for us. So Jesus goes on. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus is quoting words here from when Moses first meets God in the burning bush on Mount Sinai. And this is the moment where God is introducing himself to Moses, and he, he introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, at the time in history where Moses meets God for this first time, it's over 400 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead. And yet, God is currently still, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, and really dead, as the Sadducees taught, God would have said, I am the same God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew. Past tense. But that's not the case. He is the God they still know. So, this does clearly teach us that there is life after death. True. But how does this help us to resolve our doubts according to Scripture? Because it teaches us how to read our Bibles. When we read our Bibles, every word is filled with meaning. And not only every word, but every verb tense. There is a chasm of difference between I am and I was. If I tell you I am here, that is a, an entirely different reality than if I said I was here. 
And the difference between I am and I was can be the difference between knowing the real God who reveals himself in scripture and knowing the God that we made up. So every word of scripture, every bit of syntax, every grammatical construction, every argumentation, every reasoning, every rhetoric, every logical construction, every conjunction, every participle is hugely important if we want to know the scriptures and the power of God. If heaven and hell are in the balance, if knowing the true God versus the God of our own understanding that we made up is at stake, then let's read our Bibles like that, where we pay attention to the difference between I am and I was, and really think about how important that is. I was talking with somebody on Friday who was uh, explaining how they learned about inductive Bible study. And really, inductive Bible study, Google it. What it is, it's a way of sitting with the text and following the train of thought in the text. It's a way of looking for the conjunctions that connect the ideas. And then on your own, being able to understand clearly what the passage says. And all of us can do that. When I, when I preach a sermon, I, I, I usually, on Monday, sit down and study the passage, and, and I inductively, on my own, and I pretty much know what the passage says. And then by the time I write my sermon, my understanding of what that passage says plainly has usually not changed. What's deepened is my understanding of the historical background, uh, there, there, there's connections, inductive connections that the, that the commentators make that I didn't see. But largely, this is something all of us can do. It's, it's not a, it's not this, uh, it's not, you don't have to be elite. You just have to sit down and spend time in the text reading it, and, and God will make it plain to you what he's saying through the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're saved by faith. And Scripture is the only place where we can know God and what He requires of us. And so let's dive in, friends, to every verb tense. Let's ask ourselves, what is God saying to me with these words that I might truly know Him and know how I can glorify Him with my life? Because there's a big difference between saying Jesus is risen and Jesus rose from the dead, right? If we just say He rose from the dead, well then, potentially, He died again. But when we say he is risen, we mean that he's still alive right now and he's sitting at the right hand of God. And not only did he die for my sins, but he was raised again for my justification. And at the right hand of God, he's interceding for me so that I can be confident that he will persevere me, cause me to persevere all the way to the end. All because of the present tense, Jesus is risen. And he will come, future tense, to judge the living and the dead. And right now, I am in Christ. I'm united to him by faith. I believe in him, right? Prepositions. It's so sweet and beautiful to, to understand the scriptures to this degree. And when we do, when we study it like this, we come to know what the scriptures truly are. We come to know the power of God. We come to believe our sins are really forgiven. We actually come to believe how awful they really are. We even come to believe how many they really are. 
and that we're really forgiven, and that now in Christ I am empowered to live as he calls me to live. Like all of these realities, right, are gloriously on display in the scriptures as we read and study them. So every word of scripture is dripping with meaning and purpose and a message from the God of the universe who created all things and is holding it all together. And what a great sermon to have the day we kick off all of our Bible studies, all of our Sunday school. Right? So, so the Bible studies in Sunday school is an opportunity not only to, to read and study the scripture like this, but to deepen our relationships with each other. And so I would encourage you, Look at the bulletin. Find one. Jump in if you're not already. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We're so thankful for how Jesus displays not only his own wisdom and glory and greatness, but also leans on the reality of what Scripture says it is and who you say you are through your word in order to deal with the conflict that he's faced with. Father, help us to place that much confidence in your word ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.